Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. Uh, my name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to the ninth episode. We almost have ten whole episodes, Ben. Yeah. That's crazy. How's your day, Ben? How's your week? I'm doing alright. Uh, it's the week of the Calgary Underground Film Festival, which hosts a lot of sort of cool, offbeat films here in Calgary. A lot of horror movies. A lot of horror movies. Uh, so last night we went out and saw a documentary on the famous shower scene in Psycho. Uh, it wasn't as in-depth as I would have liked. I enjoyed it. Well, <laughs> we'll certainly have a lot to talk about, though, when we get to that film in 400 episodes or something. <laughs> what was the documentary called again? 7852. Cool. Yeah, so that was neat to see, but I am ready to delve back into the world of silent horror cinema today. (laughs) This week, uh, we're watching a film that we've seen before, you and I. It's a movie that we first watched uh, a couple years back, and uh, that had been the first time you and I had seen this film. It's not as well known as some of the other silent horror films, but it was a really cool treat. It is Shorkaren from Sweden, from 1921, Uh, the... American title is The Phantom Carriage. Mm. Um, now, what do you what do you remember about this movie from watching it? Uh, I remember the effects on the carriage just kind of uh, fading into the scene, and I suppose it was double exposure. But um, I remember that just seeming like a really neat effect for a movie of this vintage, because mm-hmm. this is nineteen twenty one. So uh, yeah, and it was like colored and glowing and. Um, Clearly, I need to rewatch this movie, because I don't... Do you you remember enjoying it? I don't remember. I feel like I would remember one way or the other, though. I have distinct memories of really enjoying this film. I mean, having never seen it, it was like discovering like a lost classic. Mm. Uh, But I haven't watched it since then, so I haven't seen it in two years. So we're both a little rusty on it. I'm really looking forward to rewatching it tonight Mm -hmm. uh, and seeing if it holds up to my memory. (laughs) Because <laughs> I, I, my memory was really impressed with it. And I mean, we were watching it as casual viewers. We weren't watching it as, like, <laughs> critics of the genre. Sure. <laughs> Scholars, if you will. Sure. Uh, this film, uh, Short Karen, is considered to be, like, one of the central works in the history of Swedish cinema. Oh, sweet. Yeah, like, it is, it's like, like, I don't want to go so far as to say it's their Citizen Kane, because, like, it's not. But it's definitely, like, up there. For Swedish cinema. Uh, it was released on New Year's Day, 1921, uh, and it was directed and stars this guy named Victor Hostrom. So he's in the film as David Holm, uh, the protagonist. And uh, Hostrom started acting at age 17. He was born in 1879. Uh, and then he started directing films in 1912 at the age of 33. This was his 39th feature film as a director, and this was, he was 42 when he made this movie. By the time he made this movie in 1920, he was generally considered to be like Sweden's top director. Now it's it's worth saying that the Swedish film industry was a nationalized film industry. Oh. Uh, so like the, the studio logo at the start of this film is for Svensk Filmindustri, which is just 
Swedish film industry in Sweden. Swedish. <laughs> and, and, you know, nationally funded film industries is not uncommon in countries that don't have as great a cinematic output. You know, we're used to this. Canada has a, a nationally funded film industry in, in a certain way of looking at it. This is common for countries who, you know, if it was left to the free market, maybe couldn't compete or there wouldn't be a lot of interest. So um, in the interest of promoting, you know, a national cultural identity, you get government funding. Mm. Is that pretty common in European countries? Because I know with Canada, a large part of the push for nationally funding films that promote Canadian culture is because we get so overwhelmed by the states. Mm -hmm. So is that pretty common in European countries where, you know, they're surrounded by all sides by this other culture and especially because of like how distinct some of those cultures seem to be? Yeah, there's certainly a, the thing about Europe is like, you have all these really distinct cultures that are all very proud of their unique cultural heritages and want to produce works that reflect that. But, you know, the other thing that's always important to remember about Europe is how small some of those countries are. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, how do you, how do you produce, you know, a, a $500 million movie when, you know, the population of your country could easily be the population of a single state of the United States, right? You know, in Canada, the, the, the problem we have is similar. There's a very small population, and we all speak English. Well, uh, other, well <laughs> a, a majority of the country speaks English. You know, the culture is very similar to that of the United States. So if we don't nationally fund our cultural works, there's not a lot of market incentive to do it. Uh, now, certain countries, you know, do have market incentive, uh, going back to the 1920s, you know, we've obviously seen a very strong German film industry in this period. And certainly there was, there was other countries with strong film industries. Some of them, like Britain, for example, or France, uh, maintained their film industries by imposing quotas on how many American films were allowed to be shown in mm. the country so that they wouldn't overwhelm their markets. So there was a lot of different strategies for dealing with, sort of competing with Hollywood, as I mentioned when we were talking about Caligari, one of the common ones was producing works that were so stylistically different from Hollywood that they would stick out in a crowded market. Uh, but yeah, this, this film was funded by uh, Svensk Film Industry, and it came about because um, author Selma Logloff... The pronunciation I heard was Selma Logloff. Uh, that's how it looks like when it's spelt. Uh, the pronunciation I heard was... was like, only two syllables. It was just, huh. like, log love. Interesting. Yeah, I also noticed when you were saying the title of the film in Swedish, uh, that's different than the pronunciation I found online. Huh. Yeah, because what I got was Shorkaren. And I got Kokolan. Yeah, and I looked up Swedish pronunciation rules because a K being pronounced as a sh seemed really weird to me, and I was told, note, that is, in fact, correct. Huh. So. Well... I shake my fist at the internet my computer was connected to. <laughs> uh, well, let's just say, if anyone listening to the podcast is Swedish or has a Swedish background, uh, we apologize for any mispronunciations. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, the, this film came about because author Selma Lagerlof had a deal with Svensk Film and Destry to adapt at least one of her novels every year. Interesting. Uh, and this deal started in 1917. 
She had previously not allowed any adaptations of her novels, but she had been very impressed because Victor Hoastrom, who directed this film, he had directed a film, uh, Ty Vagan, which was a Henrik Ibsen mm. adaptation. Yeah. And she had been very impressed by that adaptation, so she decided to make the deal. By this point, 1921, Hostrom had done three of these adaptations, uh, one each year. Tusen from Stormyrtopet, Ingmar Sunerna, and Karin Igmar's daughter. And so he had done those kind of three adaptations, uh, which had all gone very, very well. Uh, but they all had, like, picturesque rural settings and kind of like a tranquil kind of atmosphere, I guess. Uh, and Hostrom wanted a change for this fourth adaptation. So he suggested Shorkaren, which was very, like, dark and gritty and urban, mm -hmm. uh, just as, like, a change of pace. What did you find out about Selma Lagerlöf? Yeah, Selma Lagerlöf is, uh, seems to be a big deal in Sweden. So she was the first female writer to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. Oh, wow. And I've always been like, how do you qualify for a Nobel Prize in Literature or mm -hmm. something? Because it always seemed like with science, it's like, oh, I discovered this great, amazing thing. Right. Yeah, is it just like winning Best Picture Oscar, but for a book? <laughs> it's uh, most outstanding work in, quote, an ideal direction. Uh, so I'm not sure what that means, uh, unless it's to better the morality of things. I don't know. But what was interesting was that it's awarded for an author's work as a whole, not just one particular thing. Is it, is it awarded for the author's work as a whole that year, or just like up to that point? Up to that point. Okay. So she won that in 1909, and she hadn't even written Shurkarun yet. Uh, she wrote that in 1912, so only three years after uh, winning the prize? Winning the prize. Okay. It's actually kind Did of... Did we... I'm sorry to interrupt. Did we say what Shorkarin translates to? Uh, no, we did not. So Shorkarin translates to the wagoner. Okay, do uh, we want to say the wagoner? Because it seems to be... We're really not sure how to pronounce the Swedish name. Maybe we'll do that. That way we're not technically wrong. Sure. <laughs> so when she was awarded the prize, the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1909, I guess it was really contested. Uh, <laughs> well, if she was the first woman, I bet it was. Yeah, uh, the reasons that I found were all in regards to, no, this uh, other person's work was more uh, poignant, or this person had, like, more to say. Yeah, there was, I guess, other stuff going on with the Nobel Prize Committee itself um, being a little politically biased. Mm -hmm. But the reason given for why it should go to Selma Lagerlöf was for, quote, lofty idealism, vivid imagination, and spiritual perception. Hmm. So I'm not sure what spiritual perception means, but maybe... She saw dead people. <laughs> but I suspect it had something to do with, I guess, in a lot of her work, she brought in elements of spirituality without it just being, like, a ghost story or hmm. just having it be, like, a, a story about Christianity. Hmm. Her grandmother helped raise her and would tell her a lot of these Swedish fairy tales and folk tales. Because of this love of reading and writing, she became a school teacher in 1885. Um, six years later, in 1891, was when she wrote her first novel. The novel itself, The Wagoner, uh, it was translated into English by William Frederick Harvey in 1921, the same year that this movie was uh, released. Yeah, uh, so the U.S. title of the movie was The Phantom Carriage. Mm -hmm 
which you can sort of see the connection going from the Wagoner to, like, the Phantom Carriage. Uh, what was the U.S. title of the book? Thy soul shalt bear witness. And you have to say it like that because there's an exclamation point. Thy soul shalt bear witness. Exactly. Huh. Okay. That's, uh, that seems different somehow. <laughs> So she was commissioned to write The Wagoner as a means of uh, doing kind of a public education about tuberculosis. Huh. And I suspect this was kind of a trend in all of her books. She brought in lessons into her book so you could learn through entertainment. Okay, so like, she was the Swedish Miss Frizzle. <laughs> sure. Uh, the reason I suspect that is because she's most well-known for this children's novel she wrote in 1906, which is Nils Holgersson's Under Bares Njom Svanja, which uh, is The Wonderful Adventure of Nils. She was also commissioned to write that book so kids could learn about geography uh, as Nils went on his adventures. Okay. So kids would learn the geography without having to read a textbook. So in being commissioned to write The Wagoner about tuberculosis and how not to get it, <laughs> uh, the novel includes lessons on why you shouldn't cough in public, other things about hygiene, sterilizing clothes, but also she included stories about the social ills around tuberculosis, like alcoholism and domestic violence. Huh. Uh, her father was actually an alcoholic, um, so there's an interesting tie there. But there's definitely this morality tale going on, it seems, with the social ills element. Did she include the advice, don't be poor? I feel probably. like that, that probably <laughs> helps when getting TB. No kidding, hey? So, <laughs> so I've done a lot of reading about uh, the social construction of viruses and viral infections, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, that, that was just like a weird tangent in my master's degree. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, I had read Susan Sontag's 1978 book, Illness as Metaphor. Okay. In reading about uh, Samuel Lagerlof's work, uh, it made me think of Susan Sontag because in Illness as Metaphor, the two illnesses that she talks about are tuberculosis and cancer. Susan Sontag talks about how there's personality traits attached to each illness. Okay. Tuberculosis was considered a disease of passion, of indulging too much in Weird. your passions and pleasures. Huh. In reality, tuberculosis is a bacterial lung infection, kind of shown by this chronic cough with blood coming up. The term consumption is uh, considered synonymous with tuberculosis. Yeah, that's, that's like an old-timey... Mm -hmm. way of saying it. And that became uh, the term because uh, you lose a lot of weight. Yeah, people, it's like you're being consumed from the inside. Exactly. Um, it's spread through coughs, sneezes, spitting, and even speech uh, because of the breath coming out. Sure, sure. And it's so tied to the image of the urban poor or the working poor. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of brings it under suspect why uh, Lagerlof would then bring in these social ills of alcoholism and domestic violence, because if you want to paint with a broad brush or talk about stereotypes, alcoholism and domestic violence kind of go hand in hand with the stereotypical image of a, the working poor person. Sure, sure. Yeah, there's like a reason why Jackie Gleason spends all his time, like, at the lodge and is, like, constantly making, like, domestic abuse jokes towards his wife because, like, that's, that's the blue-collar family. Mm-hmm. 
that's a bit about Samuel Lagerlof, uh and uh, the origins of the book The Wagoner. So when Quastrom wanted to adapt Shorkarin, The Wagoner, Lagerlof didn't think it was a good idea. Oh. Uh, she thought that it wasn't a filmable novel due to its uh, occult themes and its mysticism hmm. and its spiritualism. Uh, she figured it just wasn't a good fit for film. So Quastrom went to her house and performed the entire script he had written out loud to her over dinner, and that resulted in her approval. So uh, Lagerlof wanted the film shot on location in Landskrona, which is a southern Swedish town that had inspired the novel, but the unique special effects needs for the film required shooting in a studio, mm. uh, specifically like newly built studio sound stages uh, that had been created uh, by the Swedish film industry quite recently, where Landskrona-inspired sets were built. Uh, the double exposure effects that you remembered uh, were extremely difficult to pull off because optical printing uh, was not yet in use. If you're listening and you're not familiar with what optical printing is, that's probably because it's not in use anymore. Back in the majority of the 20th century, uh, the technique for special effects on film uh, in the pre-digital era uh, would be to, you know, take two images that were shot at two different times on film and splice them together in an optical printer, uh, basically like literally putting one on top of the other. That technology was not even in existence at this early stage, so all of the double exposure effects in this film had to be done in camera. Uh, so they would have had to shoot the scene once, wind the film back in the camera, and shoot the scene again with the second image. And this was done painstakingly for this film, in multiple layers by cinematographer Julius Janzon, so that the figures could move three-dimensionally with depth in the frame, rather than always appearing sort of just in front of the plate, which is very typical in double exposure effects where people just they don't really look like they're in the room they just sort of look like they're floating in front of it mm. doing this was made particularly difficult because the cameras that were being used for this film were hand cranked uh meaning that in traditional film cameras there's a reel of film divided into film frames and 24 of those frames pass in front of the lens every second Back in the silent film days before sound technology, it was more like 16 or 18 frames per second, but these old-fashioned cameras would have a crank, and you would have to just crank the camera manually if you were the camera operator, sort of manually turning the reels that put the film in front of the lens. So these were hand-cranked cameras, and that meant that when they were reversed for the double exposure, the operators had to exactly match the speed that they had cranked the first exposure at in order for the result to be successful. Wow. So, yeah, just very, very painstaking, and the film was widely recognized for the immense success of these double exposure effects. Cool. The film received massive critical acclaim upon its release in Sweden, uh, and it was a very large influence on Swedish director Ingmar Bergman. Mm, yeah. Um, he first saw the film at 15 years old and reportedly watched it once a year for the rest of his life. 
the depiction of death in this film was highly influential on his later drama, uh, The Seventh Seal. Yeah. What's kind of interesting, and something I forgot to note earlier, is this novel was adapted into a movie twice in Sweden and once in France. Hmm. Of course, like, several years after this, but I wonder if this novel or this adaptation would be so successful without this memorable special effect. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. With that, I think we're pretty ready to dive into watching The Phantom Carriage. Well, how can people watch along? Phantom Carriage uh, is a public domain film. However, it is available on DVD and Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection. Uh, the Criterion Collection is an ongoing home video release series of new and classic works of cinema that are considered to be uh, significant or influential. Uh, so some of the, the, the best movies of all time get released by the Criterion Collection. They always do a very thorough stand-up job for their restorations. The Criterion Restored version of this film, you know, is gorgeous. Uh, the translation is impeccable, all that kind of stuff. So if you can get a hold of the Criterion edition of this film, uh, I would absolutely recommend it for all the reasons that I talked about in our Caligari episode about the difficulty of restoring films of this age and the importance of supporting that financially. That being said, it's a public domain film. Uh, it is on YouTube, and if you want to watch along, uh, you can certainly do so uh, on YouTube. So, uh, folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be back to discuss the film. All right, see you guys on the other side. Hey, just a quick note. Uh, we're just including a bit of a trigger warning for domestic violence, alcoholism, and attempted suicide in The Phantom Carriage. Alright, uh, welcome back everyone. Uh, we just finished watching Shorkaren, The Phantom Carriage. Um, Sarah, is this the darkest movie? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no debate. No, in the context of the movies we've seen so far, 100%. I got a lot of thoughts about <laughs> this one. Yeah, yeah. I do as well. It's also just a very like, oh boy. It's it's very heavy. Yeah. It's a it's a heavy meal. <laughs> you you need some time to digest this one. Yeah. Should I start us off with a with a a brief plot summary? Yes, please. Okay. So this this movie has like a very intricate narrative structure. I would say, I I suspect it's similar to the novel because it's got a very novelistic structure and how it introduces characters and addresses events and stuff. The film really likes to... Flashback. It, it likes to flashback and it likes to embellish. It likes to really show rather than tell. So when you end up telling it, it, it seems like there's not a lot there. But the film opens on New Year's Eve. And it's worth noting that this film was released on New Year's Day. So there's, mm. there's definitely like a... I think if you were a, a, an audience member seeing this on opening night, you know, there'd be a... a a very... Chill. A very visceral connection, yeah. So it opens on New Year's Eve, and Sister Edith is a nurse for the Salvation Army in a Swedish town, and she is dying of tuberculosis. And we're told that she's been dying for, like, a year. 
of tuberculosis, and now, like, she's on, she's on her last stretch. And all she wants is for someone to go get David home and bring her to him so she can see him before she dies. And everyone thinks this is a terrible idea, but they go out looking for this guy, and they end up finding his wife, uh, who is living with, like, some kids in... Her kids. Her kids, yeah. In, like, squalor. Uh, real bad living conditions. And she's not looking too great either. And they bring her to go see Sister Edith, and Mrs. Holm is not happy to see her at all. She's, she's pretty, pretty furious. So they lead her away. Meanwhile, uh, David is, like, out drinking on New Year's Eve in a cemetery with some of his drinking buddies. And they, they all look pretty, like, itinerant. Like, maybe not necessarily homeless, but definitely in that, you know, real poverty-stricken, alcoholic kind of appearance. And uh, David's telling them a, a story, because it's quarter to midnight, about this friend he had, George, who was, like, a real nice guy, real fun to hang out with and go drinking with, but always got, like, real weird around New Year's Eve. And George told him the reason was because if you're the last person to die on New Year's Eve, like if you die like right at midnight, you have to drive death's carriage. The deal with death's carriage, like you don't, you don't become death. Like they explicitly say that like death is your master, but you get like the hood with the cloak and the scythe and you drive around this carriage and the way that it works is time passes super slow for you, uh, so a, a night and a day is like a hundred years, so that's how they give you the explanation for the how does Santa Claus visit all the houses <laughs> in one night question. And you ride around in your carriage, and you gotta go and collect all the souls from all the dead people. You're, you're a psychopomp, basically. You, you, you throw oh, them in what? the back. Um, so a psychopomp is like a literary folkloric character whose job is to serve as a guide between the land of the living and the land of the dead. Oh, cool. We could have just summarized that with, you go and you get the souls and you put them in the carriage to take them to death. Yeah, but now people have learned a new word. <laughs> Learning. <laughs> Increase your vocabulary. So, uh, you got to do this for a year, which feels like an eternity to you, uh, and then the next person who dies right at midnight has to become the new driver. So David finishes telling this story, and he's like, Oh, ha, ha, and yeah, weird, but like, George ended up dying on New Year's Eve last year. Isn't that weird? And that's when some Salvation Army people find him, and are like, Hey, you, you have to come see Sister Edith. And he's like, Nah, dog, I am not interested. Uh, and all of his, like, drinking buddies are like, You're an asshole. <laughs> this will be the recurring theme of the film. Yeah. David Holm is an asshole. So they get no fight with him over it, and he gets real violent, and one of them ends up cracking him over the back of the head with a wine bottle, killing him. And oops, it's midnight. <laughs> the phantom carriage shows up, and it's being driven by George, and he's like, oh hey David, I feel real bad about the fact that you've died in a cemetery drunk and alone and in poverty, because it's all my fault. Mm -hmm. He was the bad influence. Yeah, so then we go into a flashback where it turns out that once upon a time, David was, like, the happiest person alive, living the most idyllic 
possible existence with his wife and his two kids and his brother. So I read that as that's what could have been. It wasn't like that's what he did have. Oh, huh. Yeah, I totally read it as like, if it wasn't for me, you would have had the perfect life. And then it shows us that, like they're having this big picnic. And then from there, it fades to the shot of them just hanging out, drinking in a field. Okay, I read it as like, it was this first, and then he became an alcoholic after he met George. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe that's what they were going for. That's not how I read it, but given the morality tale of it all, they were probably going for that being, this is what your life was like before you started drinking. Uh, I think, I mean, I think both readings are valid. They don't really make a huge difference. So I think, I think that's, that's kind of neat, though. Mm. Um, so yeah, so George is his drinking buddy, and he becomes, him and his brother, become super bad alcoholics. David ends up getting, like, arrested and thrown in jail for drunken disorderly. And when they go to, like, release him, the warden plays, like, the most intense game of, like, scaring someone straight by bringing him over and showing him, hey, while you were in jail, your brother was also a drunken idiot. He ended up killing someone. He's going to be in this prison for the rest of his life. And it's all your fault, you jerk. <laughs> So they let David go, and he's feeling really terrible. He's like, oh, man, I never knew what misery I caused other people. I'm going to totally reform and be good. And he goes home back to his apartment, and it turns out that actually the day before, his wife just decided to book it with the kids before he could get home. So instead of reforming and becoming a good guy, he decides to just go full supervillain and is all about, like, the revenge and hatred that he's going to, like, enact on his wife when he finds her. And, yeah. Yeah. So, then, George, the driver of the phantom carriage, who is telling David the story of his own life, is like, we don't have to go into what an asshole you were on your relentless search to kill your wife. Because he does say, like, he's going yeah. to kill her. He's out to kill her. Uh, so they skip forward until this point where David arrives in this town, and, you know, he's, he's a homeless alcoholic. So he stops in on a New Year's Eve at this uh, newly opened Salvation Army homeless shelter. This is exactly a year ago. So this is New Year's Eve exactly a year ago. And uh, he stops in, and he goes to sleep, and it's being run by Sister Edith. She is just so... Gung-ho. Gung-ho about, like, we're gonna, like, cure all of society's ills through the power of Jesus. She's so gung-ho about things that she, like, takes David's coat off of him after he falls asleep, and she's like, I'm gonna spend all night sewing this and patching it up. And, like, Sister Maria's, like, our sterilization oven isn't even turned on yet. You can't sterilize this coat and then work on it. Just leave it. And yeah, it's, Sister it's Edith's full of like, germs. Yeah, and Sister Edith's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I just want to help. David's their first guest. So yeah. she's so stoked about it. So she spends the whole night fixing his coat, and the and narration the... explicitly tells us that she contracts the TB that she is currently in the present dying of from this effort. Yeah. David wakes up in the morning, and continuing the movie's right-on-point portrayal of him as a relentless asshole... Uh, proceeds he... to rip up the coat with all the patches in front of Sister Edith, being like, I looked it this way. He's just a dick. He just is a dick to everyone and enjoys it. Yeah. So we learn that, like, Edith spends basically the whole rest of the next year trying to get David to reform. Like, he's her special project. Yeah. And we also learn that David has tuberculosis, 
and he's a real dick about it. Like, he intentionally goes around coughing in people's faces because he hopes that they die. He says something along the lines of, like, why should they have it so good? Yeah, like, he's the most misanthropic person you can possibly imagine. And also in the process of this year, Sister Edith happens to fall in love with him. Yeah, it's it's part of this weird obsession she has with, like, reforming him, is that she also thinks she loves him. Which, uh, she's a, a bit of a, a young, naive girl. Yeah. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, she's, she's definitely portrayed as being a little bit too naive for yeah. the sake of things, because it turns out this is the town that David's wife fled to with their children. Yep. And Edith finds this out, and her reaction to this news is, if I can only get them back together, like, David will reform and it'll save his soul, because all he needs to do is get back together with his wife. And I'm just like, girl, stop. Yeah. Please stop what you're doing now. Yeah. It backfires so hard. Oh, man. So and they... it clearly, because, like, this is all still a flashback. Yeah, right. And, like, <laughs> the thing is, is, like, David told Edith that he's looking for his wife, but he didn't tell her that it's so that he can kill her. They they try to, like, make it work. They The, the Salvation Army, like, cleans David up and brings him to the apartment, and they kind of force the two of them together, and, like, oh, I guess we'll make this work. And then the Salvation Army leaves, like, cool, you guys are... <laughs> And of course, David does not reform. No, he goes right back to his ways. And so then things turn into The Shining. In an attempt to get away from him, his wife locks him in the kitchen, and he finds an axe and breaks it down. And all you need is the Here's Johnny title card, and you got The Shining. Yeah, he, he he's just a dick. He's just a relentless yeah. dick. Like So anyways, like we come back from the flashback of David being a dick. He's feeling very remorseful, but, you know, he's dead. So, yeah, yeah, uh, Ghost of it is like, I was the worst. And I think, I think the implication is that being dead sobers you up real quick. Like, oh, yeah. like he's sober now, and now he can realize what an ass he was. And Yorge is like, yeah, you've been a dick. You gotta go see Sister Edith before she dies. Yeah. And then at that point, he realizes, like, oh, fuck, uh, she's sick and dying because of me. Meanwhile, Sister Edith sees Yorge as uh, death. Yeah, and they, they, uh, is like pleading, like, no, 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 like, let me live for a few minutes longer. I need to see David. I need to convince him to perform his ways because it's my fault he's been led even further into sin by continuing to not reform. And, you know, instead, George is just like, yeah, girl, you are, you are too late. Like, yeah. he is already dead. Then she dies. Mm-hmm. And then George is like, okay, well, we gotta go. Uh, yeah, the people f- coming for her will be here in a few minutes, and just yeah. kind of leaves it at we, that, we got, which is right. very clearly like, oh, the angels, but Yeah, maybe we just didn't want to like put money in the budget for like the makeup for wings. It's way more effective to show like the Grim Reaper than to try and show like angelic beings, like things start to get cheesier once you do that. Uh, that's fair. So anyways. Uh, so then George takes David back to the place where his wife is living, and David's like, what What are we doing here? Is someone uh, going to friend? die here? George? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wait, why? And we see Mrs. Holm, I don't think she's ever given a first name. No. Being like, you know, I, I'm just, I can't go on with, like, this abusive relationship. Um, these two children, like, they won't be able to, like, survive on their own without me, but we can't get away from this relationship. So she starts pouring poison into some tea that she's clearly going to give to her kids and drink herself. Yeah, and uh, that's the point where David is, like, 
realizes how much he really has fucked up and starts, like, saying these prayers to God. Uh, well, at first he tries to ask, like, George to help, and George is like, dude, like, I, I can't do anything. Like, I don't have any power over the living. Yeah. So that's when he, he breaks down and, and instead asks God for help. And then George is like, ah, oh, I see, now you're finally going to reform. Takes him back to his body, and lo and behold, David is alive again. Alive? Again, yeah, his soul goes back to his body. He rushes back and stops his wife from having the poison. And, like, he really shows through, uh, really just through the power of the actor that, you no, know, he really will reform. Um, and his wife is like, oh, yay, thank God, finally. Um, yeah, that's the ending. We end the film with the, with the prayer. Right. Uh, which is, um, yeah. Let my soul come to maturity before it is revealed. Yeah, and that's the end. That... Is a lot. Yeah, it's it's darkest timeline version of it's a, of Christmas Carol or it's a wonderful life. It's it's a Christmas Carol if Scrooge was no like really bad and yeah. you know and if, like just every awful thing. It's it's the bleak existential cousin to those films. That said, like I do think that without a doubt, Phantom Carriage is probably the most accomplished film we've watched so far. Mm-hmm. I mean. In terms of lighting, sets, costumes, framing, composition, special effects, editing, you know, shot type we have, wide shot, medium shot, close up, shot reverse shot, acting is phenomenal. I mean, this is the best made film we've seen. This is clearly a director who who knows what tools are in his toolbox and how to use them. Yeah, it felt like a very modern film all things considered, even just the way that it was structured with the flashbacks and this telling a story within the flashback and having it have a purpose. Like, this film is tight. Mm-hmm. Compare that flashback and story within the flashback to John Barrymore's Jekyll and Hyde, where we had the dancer have this story uh, and we flash back to a scene about her poison ring. What was the purpose of this? You know, this film does things like when someone tells a story about something, we see it visually. Yeah. Um, But everything in this movie is so evocative. And I mean, the movie's tight, like you said, in the sense that everything is purposeful, but the the pace never feels rushed. This Mm -hmm. film has a very deliberate pace that I think adds a lot to its sort of relentless view of fate and existence. This movie is really, really good. I I think, anyways. Yeah, yeah. And if it was bad, it would be a D.W. Griffith movie. Yeah, I think the, honestly, like, sure, the cinematography and the special effects and everything certainly help, but it's the acting that keeps this movie from being D.W. Griffith. Yeah, like, this feels like the kind of, you know, morality tale with a message that's faintly religious, that, you know, moralizes and tells you not to do something. You know, it, and, and the fact that the characters are kind of a little bit loose sketches. Like, it really feels like Griffith. But the reason why I say, like, the movie has that existential quality is because up until, like, the ending, it's this movie's kind of uniquely bleak and almost hopeless and very, like, matter-of-fact worldview that, you know, is so deliberate that sets it apart from Griffith. And, and I do agree with you, though, that the, the acting certainly does it, too. I mean, the, the lead actor, uh, Victor Hostrom, who's also the director, is, is so good at portraying, you know, David as, in his, in his pre-drunken state, as a, like a, a normal, standabout guy, in uh, a kind of middle state where he's 
remorseful as this total asshole who's, you know, just this down-on-his-luck, rock-bottom guy, and then is, like, the, the repented person at the end of the story. Like, he gives that guy such a full arc and so many layers of three-dimensionality. It's really an impressive performance. Yeah, I think on the page, it would have been easy for Holm to be one note. Mm-hmm. Just like, yeah, he's a dick because mm-hmm. of alcohol. The acting just brings so much depth, even within, like, single scenes. Yeah, and and the the film backs him up. I mean, that's sort of to be expected because he's directing it. (laughs) But, like, you know, there's a scene where he's confronted at a tavern or a bar, and there's a big scene between everybody. It's Edith trying to get him to reform again. He's a huge jerk to her, and she leaves. And then the film kind of holds on his face, like, a little bit longer than it really needed to, just to give him a moment to, like, consider himself before moving on, like, there's just so many little things like that that are so effective. Yeah. Just kind of a side note as well. So the version we watched was the Criterion Edition uh, that was on YouTube, and I just need to say that the music was, like, top-notch with it. Oh, sure. Like, a big part of, you know, the score that was chosen for this film is clearly a, a modern composition. Yeah. But it really backs up the relentless, inescapable hand of fate kind of theme of the film with this kind of, I don't even know how to describe. (laughs) Like, like, there were parts of it that had just this solid, steady note that feels like, like the ticking of a clock. Yeah. And then there was a lot of it where it was just like kind of single tones, very experimental kind of feeling, really supported the uh, fantastical sights that you're seeing of the phantom carriage going through different scenes Mm -hmm. um but also had this like uneasy feeling and also of time and place losing meaning yeah i would totally agree with that the special effects of the phantom carriage are incredible yes and we, we we talked about that a little bit before the break but you know it bears repeating just how remarkable and how good they all look One of the things I really noticed about this film in comparison to some of the films we've seen before is this film is so dedicated to kind of a verisimilitude. You know, it's all shot on sound stages, but everything looks real. The Mm -hmm. clothes look real in a way that costumes don't usually look from movies of this period. Uh, You know, people's faces look real. The distinction in kind of the amount of facial hair and the facial appearance between David and his wife at various stages of their lives is so believable. The performances are so believable. You know, his wife gives an amazing performance as well. And I think all of that stuff is really effective in properly contrasting the supernatural elements Mm -hmm. so that, you know, those elements are so haunting and chilling when they're happening because we're not in a crazy mad world like Dr. Caligari. We're like, of course everyone's crazy if you <laughs> live in that world. In this movie, we're in the real world. And so when things start to get spooky, like it's, it's that much more effective. Definitely. Yeah, I was thinking about how morality tales can be horror films. Right. And definitely this movie is a horror film. It has survivors, not heroes. And kind of relating to that point you just made, it's it's just super chilling in that what we are trying to survive is life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the horrors of poverty. Yeah. Like, this is not a scary film. Like, there aren't really, like, scares. 
there's a lot of chilling scenes. I think the closest scene to being scary is the one that The Shining used, of this guy coming at his wife with an axe through a door. But, like, it's definitely a horror film because there's such an incalculable feeling of dread hanging yeah. over the entire picture. Like, horror as a feeling permeates the entire film. You've got so much to be afraid of in this film. You've got death. You've got the passage of time. You've got regret. You've got, you know, those things that you've done that you can never take back. Uh, your wasted lives. Family members who turn against you. Um, the loss of control from alcohol, the randomness of death by disease, the capriciousness of fate, the fact that, yeah, you, you put it so well that the monster, the horror, the fear, the thing we're trying to escape and survive here is just life. Yeah. It's supposed to be an eye-opening moment when Sister Edith is saying, like, no, 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 you can't take me yet because I feel remorse for whatever. And she's being presented to us up until this point as, like, pure and, like, mm -hmm. saintly, but her, but her But her purity fucks everything up. Yeah, well, not her purity, her naivety. Yes, but it's like she's so, she's so eager to do good that she doesn't stop to think about it for one second. Yeah, it made me wonder about the translation of the prayer that death keeps saying, let my soul come to maturity before it is reaped. Mm -hmm. Because it was like the use of the word maturity that was strange to me because Sister Edith is so naive and young. Yeah, and I think that's the point. I think the word makes perfect sense. Because, mm -hmm. you know, what the film's talking about, like the film is saying that, like, David died before his time, before he got resurrected. Anyways, but Edith dies before her time too. Because of her mistakes. You know, David made a lot of stupid decisions because he wasn't thinking with a mature mind, right? He wasn't thinking about the other people in his life. He wasn't thinking about the way that his actions have consequences. Neither was Edith. David's going around drinking and flicking cigarette butts in people and coughing in their face and calling everyone assholes and being a jerk. She's going around, you know, loving and helping people. But they're both kind of guilty of the same sin, which is kind of being so wrapped up in themselves that they're not thinking about the consequences of their actions. And that's a really immature attitude. Yeah. You know, that attitude of, you know, on Edith's part, it's, I can save the world. And on David's part, it's, ah, the world is garbage and should all be torn down. They're both immature. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what the film is saying. Like, like, please, you know, before I, let me, let me develop fully as a human being before I die, instead of dying as some asshole. If we want to talk about how bleak this film is, I think one thing that really stood out to me is, is even though, you know, David is saved at the end and he gets his redemption at the end, like, one of the central plot points of the film, one of the reasons why Edith wants to see David at New Year's before she dies, is the whole thing is that while she's mending his coat that one time when she contracts TB, she says a prayer to Jesus where she hopes that, like, the first guest that this little shelter gets, will have a good year. And so all she wants is to just see the guy a year later to see if, like, he's had a good year, basically. And he hasn't. He's had a terrible year. And it's her fault he's had a terrible year. And all this awful stuff has happened. And so it's like the movie's blatantly telling you that the Salvation Army nurse prayed to Jesus, and Jesus was not listening. There are parts of this that I disagree with. If it was that, oh, they both were super immature and are dying as a result, she would just be picked up by death just the same. Mm. 
right? So I had a, I wasn't sure if the term maturity was referring to the idea of like accepting Christianity, like because you're mm. like improving your life. Mm. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure where this movie really stands on Christianity, because like as much as David's gets to be redeemed and come back to life and, and be with his family and all this sort of stuff after he prays to God, which is like, that's a very Christian message, obviously. On the other hand, Sister Edith is is shitty at what she does. Like, she's here to, like, save all these people. And, like, the movie's about how she fucks that up. You know, the attitude of the carriage driver of George is, like, so just bleak and hopeless. Mm. I, I, I'm not sure. I will say that, like, this film's view of, like, a cold universe that cares little for good people or evil people, like, that's pretty easy to see how this film influenced The Seventh Seal and Ingmar yeah. Bergman. Sweden's, like, a majority Lutheran Protestant country, and I don't know as much about Lutheranism as I do about other Protestant faiths like Calvinism, so I'm not sure how much this film's philosophy ties in with kind of Swedish religious philosophy, but there is certainly a lot to unpack in this film, that's for sure. Yeah, I would love to hear what that religion has to say in regards to who's to blame for things, because, like, it's George's fault for introducing alcoholism into David's life, but it's it's Sister Edith's fault for causing David to do more sin by continuing to be an alcoholic. I know it was just to scare him straight with, like, his brother going to jail, mm-hmm. but the judge's comment was, we were considering having you do his life sentence for killing a guy because it was you who introduced him to alcohol. Yeah, there's certainly like a, a chain of responsibility here where George makes David an alcoholic and David makes his brother an alcoholic. That leads to like the breakup of this marriage and then like Edith puts this marriage back together which leads to more abuse, you know, and everyone's kind of at fault here. Now, the other moral influence on this film, I think, is the, the temperance movement. Mm, for sure. Like, the Salvation Army itself was founded as part of the temperance movement, uh, and it plays, like, a big part in this film. And this film is so avowedly anti-alcoholism. Prohibition in the United States was 1920 to 1933, but if we go over to Scandinavia, Prohibition lasted from 1919 to 1926, in Finland from 1915 to 1935, and in Iceland from 1915 to 1923. But it didn't happen in Sweden. Hmm... So you have Prohibition in, like, all the surrounding countries at the time this movie's made. But Sweden's, the bars are open. And I think that puts a a tone on this film, too. Yeah, definitely. Do we want to talk a little bit about the ending of this film? Because, you know, one of the questions, and I think you brought this up a little bit earlier, is does the ending feel like it is part of the rest of the film? Because watching it this time, I sort of felt this film was so bleak and relentless and kind of dark that the, the ending where, oh, actually, you're not dead, and uh, you can go back to your wife, and she's going to take you back, and everything's going to be fine, it, it feels a little bit out of left field, and I, I wanted to get your take on what you thought of this ending. I don't know. I think the religion aspect is throughout because of the Salvation Army. Like, um, That's fair. Like, it's all in Swedish, but it's clear that they have prayers written in, like, pictures on the wall. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know, I feel like maybe the director, because I'll say director because I, I don't know if the religion aspect is as clear in the novel. I wonder if he's working out his own feelings about religion as well. Because we have this unclear, we're not sure where Sister Edith lies in terms of immaturity and mm. I'll say redemption, maybe. Sure. And towards the end, like it's very clear that there is a sense of redemption for David but we also saw earlier in the film when he's released from jail that he's feeling all like like everything's coming up David. Yeah. And like he gets there and then it's so quick for him to turn. I have a lot of mixed thoughts about this ending where I kind of ping pong back and forth. Yeah. And one of them is about this is a story about a guy who tried to kill his wife. And, like, then was abusive to her. And then the happy ending is they get back together. After he's learned his lesson? Sure. I mean, I think that I would have preferred, like, an ending maybe where he showed up, stopped her from poisoning herself and the kids, and then said, like, hey, I'm a shitty dude. I promise to leave and never harass or harm you ever again and never come back. Go live your lives. Bye. Like, rather than him and her getting back together. Yeah, the thing I kept thinking about when we're supposed to be seeing... David finally really show that he's sorry for his actions and he's like crying. Mm -hmm. And there are so many times where like you see that kind of behavior and it's really just another attempt to manipulate you into staying. The wife says something along the lines of like, you know, your tears have convinced me. And it's like, oh great, like she has to perform this extra emotional labor after like she's just about to kill herself and her kids but her husband comes home, says he's sorry, and she's like, cool, let me perform some emotional labor for you. Everything will be fine. I think that one of the difficulties about films like this can be that you have to take the film on its own terms. For sure. Like, like there's only so much meaning they can get across in title cards. So one of the thoughts I had, two of the thoughts I had about this ending, one of them was that, you know, maybe the reason why we should be happy we have this ending is, you know, this film is so relentlessly dark that perhaps there's a feeling that the audience has maybe deserved this ending by this point, that we've sort of deserved a reprieve, and and even though the happy ending's maybe a bit contrived, you know, it's rather, we'd rather have that than just, like, another instance of awful, horrific tragedy at the end of a whole movie full of it. You could also see it as uh, Sister Edith's prayer being answered mm. like he's being reformed mm -hmm. and redeemed i also think that you know you've talked a lot about the way that alcoholism and abuse is is a, a cycle and the way that people backslide i do think that you know if you take the film on its own terms we have to believe that his redemption is genuine and permanent by simple matter of the fact that this story is being told to us yeah. That just by the simple narrative logic of if he backslided after this, this story wouldn't be worth telling. Therefore, by the logic of we were told it, things must be happily ever after. Otherwise, there was no meaning to the story. Yeah. Do you think that the happy ending, like, where everyone's saved, like, do you think that that affects whether this is a horror film or not for you? No, because they're still going to die. <laughs> Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. the, the carriage is still going to come for them. Yeah, like, sure, David's no longer going to have to be, like, the carriage driver, mm -hmm. but they still have to escape the horror of poverty, Yeah, right? 
they got they got one step up yeah. by breaking the cycle of abuse, supposedly. Can I leave you with a final question before we go into ranking? Yeah. If David isn't dead, who is the new carriage driver? Well, it can't be Edith because she went to heaven. And it can't be Yorge. He's done his time. If if a night is like a hundred years, uh-huh. like a day is a hundred years, uh-huh. dude still has like 50 years to find someone, you know? Like, like sure. he, he has like five years left. Sure. I, I, I'm just saying. As like, happy as he was like, oh, fuck yes, I don't have to do this shitty job anymore for like presumably low pay and no benefits. <laughs> uh, and then he sees that it's his friend and he's like, fuck. <laughs> now I have to turn his life around. Yeah, Fuck. I got, <laughs> I've only got so much time. Yeah. Oh, but like, I also feel like it's a way of, like, redeeming George. Yes, absolutely it is. Yeah. Um, totally. Because it's not clear, because he's like, I have no control over the living. Mm-hmm. Um, so who knows how much power he has over the dead. Yeah. It's not clear whether David's redemption and, like, answering his prayers comes from Yorge or not, mm-hmm. but certainly it was Yorge's decision to, like, bring David around to be like, see how shitty you are? Come on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I would agree with that as well. Yeah. But, uh... That's why I was like, do morality tales count within horror films? And I think, like, it's kind of like a Venn diagram. You have horror films and you have morality tales, and Phantom Carriage is within both. Yeah, totally. And I I think a lot of horror movies fit within both as well. There's a lot of moralizing in horror, whether it just be as simple as don't have sex or Freddy's going to come get you. I suppose what I mean by the morality tale is having the redemption achieved at the end. Because horror films are typically don't do this because you just won't be redeemed. (laughs) Right, right. Like, you'll be dead. Okay, so let's 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 rank. Yeah. Let's rank uh, Phantom Carriage. Yeah, I'll make it easy for you. Number one. Yeah, straight to the top. I think so. Yeah, what's there right now? Caligari. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is better than Caligari because of how real it feels. <sighs> Caligari's so like. <sighs> Caligari's off in Wonderland. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to be like, yeah, no, this happened to my dude. Like, or sorry, this happened. <laughs> Like, this is kind of like the the Freaky Friday. Right. Kind of, not Freaky Friday. What was that that show? The YTV one with the cockroach and the other guy, like, telling stories in a diner? Yeah, like, um, uh, a friend of a friend of mine. That was Freaky Stories. Freaky Stories. Yeah, this could very well be a freaky story, because it's like, yeah, a friend of a friend of mine. It's got a few freaky stories buried within it. Like, For sure. Like, like, the story of just Yorge is a story within the story. And I feel like Caligari is like, it goes too far into that fantastical. Mm. Sorry, that makes it sound like that's a bad thing. Uh, it's a much more fantastical film. It's less which, relatable. Yeah, so being more fantastical, you can put kind of this barrier between you and it, because it's like, the city doesn't look like that, I'm safe, Right. Cal- versus this, where it's like, well, fuck, just don't be a terrible person, because you <laughs> don't want to die on New Year's Eve. Yeah, Caligari's saying like, hey, after getting your degree in clinical psychology, don't develop like an obsession with, like, an old Italian uh, <laughs> magician and his somnambulist patient because your obsession might lead you to go mad and become a murderer. Whereas this film's like, don't be a shitty alcoholic. Yeah, I mean, like, that's the very literal thing. Even just looking at the Caligari Be Afraid of Authority mm. and Phantom Carriage of Be Afraid of Poverty, mm-hmm. I, 
I don't know about you, I'm a little more afraid of poverty than I am of authority. Sure, and I think, you know, it's one thing to say, well, okay, you know, I can, I can avoid madness, and I can fight authority. It's another thing to be like, well, I guess I'll just not die. How do you fight poverty? Like, it's, it's a structural issue. Authority, sure, is structural as well, but, like, just overthrow the authority, right? Just, just have the revolution. But how do you, how do you fight poverty? Like okay, so so we're thinking it's better than Cabinet of Doctor Caligari. Yes. <sighs> Why do you hesitate? I think I only hesitate because Caligari's famous as shit, and like I feel like Phantom Carriage probably is if we were Swedish, but like he's less well known here, and it's just like, am I? Is there something about Caligari that I'm forgetting? And all I can, all that's coming to me is that Caligari felt like a ludicrous, whimsical time in like silly fairyland where I was off having fun with my goth buds and Phantom Carriage was like, life is horrible, you will die. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, I think Phantom Carriage goes at the top then. Cool. Alright, I mean, it's, I mean, definitely it's the best film, but now it's the best horror film. Yeah. So sliding in at the, the top of the list is Short Carlin, a.k.a. The Phantom Carriage from 1921, directed by Victor Hoastrom. Yeah. Okay, so if you want to see this list that we've been talking about, you can see the entire list ranked from best to worst, uh, along with what episodes we watch what movie in, at our Tumblr at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also find links to our YouTube playlist where you can watch all of the public domain films that we have watched so far, uh, as well as, of course, uh, links to the episodes proper. If you disagree with where the Phantom Carriage is at... On our Tumblr, you can also submit an appeal through our Ask box. And also feel free to send an email to screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, where we will see your appeal, debate it, and disagree. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, additionally, if uh, there's any films that you feel we should have already covered and missed, uh, those are great places to submit a suggestion to the list. Mm-hmm. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. And you can find us on iTunes. We'd love it if you could leave us a review. That's how our podcast can be heard by other people, just like you. And on our SoundCloud, be sure to share and like and comment. Uh, New episodes of Scream Scene come out every Wednesday. What are we watching next week, Ben? Oh, we've got a treat next week. we got a big episode next week, Sarah. We're watching Nosferatu, Eine Symphony des Grounds. Awesome. I We've also seen this one. And we've actually uh, we've, seen this like several times. Several times. I've seen this movie so many times. I am so stoked for Nosferatu. Great. Okay, everybody. Be sure to join us next week for Nosferatu, our first vampire movie on the list. It's going to be a good one. Woo. All right. See you later, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.